you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Over. This is Kim, and welcome to the 193rd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm talking with Mary Rothwell, one of our soon-to-be certified mental freedom practitioners. Mary has over 30 years of experience helping people of all ages create positive change in their lives. She's a licensed professional counselor and has worked at all levels of education as a coach, counselor, and educator. She is president of Viria Consulting and Mary Rothwell Coaching, which she founded to help people maximize wellness and fulfillment. On the flip side, Mary is a plant geek, writer, speaker, lover of trails seldom traveled, and minion to cats. She lives in beautiful Adams County, Pennsylvania, with her husband and cats, Georgia, Sunny, Clemson, and Rigby. She can be found or lost in her gardens or the woods. If you're watching this on YouTube, you might be able to see the snow in her background. They just got a nice fresh snow in Pennsylvania. It's beautiful to look at out the window. Not so beautiful to drive in, but beautiful to look at. Mary, I'm just so grateful you were able to join us for this conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kim. My pleasure completely. I am super impressed with the way that you dove in to your mental freedom experience sessions, because one of the requirements to be certified in mental freedom is that you have to run your own mental freedom experience. And you have been doing that with a group of friends of yours, which is a very exciting dynamic because you told me that you have known them for many years. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, I'd like you to share with the audience when you first learned about the mental freedom principles. What did you know? How were you drawn to that? To give a little background, most of my work has been as a counselor, nearly 35 years, but I never studied choice theory specifically. And it was as I was researching and trying to decide if I wanted to be certified as a coach, because this is a new part to my career. And I found your website and that's how I read about mental freedom. As I saw the outline and what you had written about it, I was thinking, those are things that I've incorporated into my counseling relationships and pretty powerfully, but never in the sequence with the organization. So a lot of it resonated with me. And when I saw how it was all put together, and then you and I talked so I could get more information, and I decided to jump in and get the certification and going through it myself was pretty powerful and with a group at the same time to hear other people's experiences. And then now to be able to transition and use this in the sequence with a group, that's a different way than I've ever worked. But I've, as you and I have shared, it's been really powerful, even from the first session. I love that. I really love that because it just validates what I believe to be true. So thank you so much for being willing to do that little mini testimonial. I know that's not something I asked for, but I really do appreciate it. That leads me to my next question where I'd like to ask if mental freedom, you mentioned it was pretty powerful for you. So I like to find out if it had an impact for you personally, and if so, how, if you're willing to share that. Sure. I'll say obviously, but maybe it's not obvious to everyone. But I think when you've done the work that we've done for as long as we've done it, you have to have some personal insight anyway. 
what was powerful for me going through the training was that it put maybe different terms to something. So for instance, the idea of I have to do something and turning that around and looking at it more powerfully of like, well, actually, I want to do this because of whatever outcome or the idea of responsibility. And that's been something through my life, just with some family issues, there have been times where I might've felt powerless, or I might've been the one that felt like I'm the only one here that can step in and take care of this situation. And I think just over time and having the insight for myself as I went through life, it occurred to me, sometimes I don't have to take the responsibility for certain situations because I put them on my plate. They didn't have to be there. When we went through that in our mental freedom training, you added the part about response able. I love words. And I think the way that is worded is really powerful because yeah, you can have a response and you're able to create how you want to maybe meet that situation, but it doesn't make you responsible. As we went through and applied a lot of it and then got to the end where the, the tougher stuff with the glow and all of those things, those maybe got me a little deeper into some of the things that I felt like, okay, I have not taken responsibility for these things for years. However, can I look at this with a different light shining on it and see that there was a benefit from it? Right. Okay, great. Like you just described the benefit of you had a surgery on your shoulder recently and had a lot of difficulty post-surgery, and that meant you didn't have to shovel the snow yesterday. So there was a little glow even in that. I see you're practicing what we talked about, which is awesome. <laughs> I know I mentioned that you are using mental freedom. It's not really with clients, though. It's with a group of women that you have been friends with for quite some time and know really well. And that's what I love about mental freedom because it can be used in counseling. It can be used in coaching. And it's a psychoeducational approach. So you could really teach it to anyone. It doesn't have that same power differential that counselors have or coaches have. When you did this work with the people in your group, can you tell us a little bit about that, of course, without violating any confidentiality, but how did that go for you and for them? We're halfway through the sixth session, so we've completed three. The reason I decided to work with a group of people I know is because I've transitioned out of working in the counseling field for somebody else. And I think we're probably going to touch on this, but I have used the principles in my counseling relationships during our training. But I decided because I wanted to offer it to people that I knew would have a connection going in, and that's going to make it a little bit easier having a group. So I just put it out to a group of friends, and half of them decided they wanted to join me in this. From the beginning, they were very committed to showing up and they bring notebooks, they take notes. And I think it's almost sometimes, and I've known these women probably for 40 years, but I will see a light bulb go on above their head. It's, it's almost like I can see it or they'll text me during the week and they'll give me an example of something they used. Somebody said, you know what, there's this thing going on at work. And I said, I'm going to help this time, but it's the last time I'm taking responsibility for it. They've assumed the language of it. They'll say to me, wow, like this is really powerful. As I shared with you, when you go from a situation of saying, I have to do something and we're trying to transition into who I want to, there is a lot of times that middle ground of, they don't want to say want. 
they want a different word in there. And I think because there's already trust, I could push into that with somebody in the group a little bit. I'll use the word confront. That's a counseling word, but I could kind of confront that a little bit and say, you know, you're really resisting using this. And we talked about, they wanted to say, I'm going to choose to do it. I don't have to, I'm going to choose to. So trying to get to that last step might've been a little bit easier because these weren't strangers coming together, even though I know that can work because I saw it happen in our group. But I think just because there's already a trust with each other, they can let their guard down and maybe step into that a little bit more quickly. Yeah. I like that have to want to, when somebody goes and makes the full transition to, darn it, you're right. I do want to do it. They almost don't want to say it, but when they do, they realize, wow, I really don't have to do it. And there's a good reason why I'm doing it. And we always say, if you don't want to say want to, you don't have to. That's one of the things I love about mental freedom is it's not prescriptive. These are invitations. You can take all six of them and you'll experience massive mental freedom. If you do five out of the six, you'll still have really good mental freedom. It just won't be as far as you can go. And that's all it is. And maybe going from zero to six is too big of a jump for some people. For sure, that might be overwhelming and a little terrifying. Do what you're comfortable with and save the rest for another time. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to do any of it. It's just, if you really want more mental freedom in your life, these are ways you can get there. I like that because it's not putting us in the position of, we know something you don't know, let us teach you so you can have a better life. It's just, these are things that have worked for other people, for ourselves. And if you want to use them, you can. If you don't want to use them, it's okay. No problem. Absolutely. Yep. You mentioned that you have interwoven some of the mental freedom ideas in your counseling practice. What are some of the problems or challenges that maybe you've addressed with mental freedom? Sure. The majority of my work recently has been in the college setting. That's one of my passions is working with young adults because they're just starting to see themselves as a lot of times independent from their families. So we get a lot of parent issues. And I remember I was talking with one of my students and lifelong frustration with some of mom's habits. She probably sees clearly her mom's habits much better than her own mother does. Mm -hmm. But she talked to me about sharing some good news with her mom on the phone. And she said, and I was so excited, but she kept talking about herself. And I said, but isn't that what your mom always does? We were able to process that she can be sure that her mother is always going to do what suits her mother the best. That was really eye-opening for her because we do tend to do that. We have this expectation that somebody is finally going to give us what we need when they haven't for 20 years. And so she actually came up. She said, you know, I think we need a bumper sticker that says expect the expected. And I said, that is a very powerful way to say that. And when I have students that in their families of origin, they tended to be the caretakers. They are able to start identifying that. Our young people now, for whatever reason, whether it's social media, there's a lot more awareness of the lingo. They're way more aware of some of the things that they may tend to do. They'll say, I'm a caretaker. We can take that farther. And I did actually with a couple people with the responsible versus responsible. When they see something happening in the family and they feel like they need to step in or they can't have a certain reaction because it's going to upset their mom or they have to take care of a younger sibling. 
we process that with the language of, is that your responsibility or are you able to have a different response? Because you can certainly have a response, but to feel like you must have a certain response or one that you've always had in the past is really limiting. So we reframe that and that's really helped certain people be able to see the situation differently. This relief of like, oh yeah, like that isn't my responsibility. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you won't still be responsible for it, but it's such a different experience when you're coming at it from, I'm doing this because I want to, not because I have to. I want to take care of my younger sibling because my parent isn't capable and I am, and I love my sibling and I want to do it. But there is also the opposite end when you realize you're taking responsibility and you're frustrated and you're angry about it, you can stop. You don't have to keep doing it. It's not that you're locked in. That's an excellent example. And I love, love expect the expected. We're going to have to reach out to your client and see if we can get her permission to use that in the mental freedom program. That could be a great meme for social media. Expect Mm -hmm. the expected. Yep. We call that the unconditional trust challenge. You trust people to be who they've shown you they are until they can consistently show you something different. Not that people can't change. That mother may one day wake up and say, I have really been very selfish in my relationship with my daughter and I need to call my daughter and see how she really is and only talk to her about her. She could do that, but don't expect it because it's never happened Mm -hmm. before. Could happen, but expect the expected. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. One of the things I've been asking mental freedom practitioners is whether they can think of any type of person or type of issue that may not benefit from the mental freedom experience. Do you think there are certain people that wouldn't benefit or perhaps certain problems that may not work with mental freedom? As I went through the training with you, there would be some question marks that would come up for me. I don't have a definitive answer because I haven't utilized it enough, but what occurs to me would be... For instance, someone who truly isn't ready, that doesn't matter what model you're using. If you're not ready to take a real honest look at what's happening, whether it's coaching or counseling, you're not going to move forward. You're not going to create change. The other thing that might be a challenge is if some of these things are related to deeper trauma. For instance, if we're talking about a situation with a parent and there was really a lot of unresolved issues around abuse or trauma that they witnessed, Talking about that, even if they can see, okay, so this behavior doesn't need to continue to be on me. I don't need to take responsibility or, but I think there could be other layers that Mm. are exposed through this that are much deeper. One of the things that I think is really awesome with this model is that coaching is newer to me, but the ease at which you can apply it in coaching and therapy is really beautiful. But someone who hasn't had the training with the therapy just needs to be aware that if there are certain things that come up that are deeper, they need to be able to assist that client with getting that deeper help. Right. When I train coaches, even when I train them and they are therapists like you are, I often recommend you need to have, I use the old school term, you need to have a robust Rolodex or you might say a contact list in your phone with people who can support you and your clients when you get into areas that are not your area of expertise 
or if you're just a coach, and I don't mean that as if they're less than anything, but if you're only a coach and not also a therapist, then you want to have therapists in your phone list to be able to refer your coaching clients to if they get into some things that actually require deeper inspection, deeper work that a counselor would do. I agree with everything you said. When we talk about people who aren't ready, I also include that there are some people, and I do not mean this as a criticism at all, there are some people who have learned and maybe have the life where staying a victim is more beneficial for them than becoming more empowered. They get more when they are a victim than if they become healthier and more mentally free. And if that's the case, then don't do mental freedom. You got to do what's right for you and what's good for you. I wouldn't say don't learn it. <laughs> you can learn it and say, yeah, no, that's not for me. And maybe five years down the road, you'll say, you know what? I remember that I had learned this thing and maybe that would help me. It might change things, but I agree. There are people who just are not ready for whatever reason to pull out of what I call self-created misery. There is a lot of self-created misery, and I know that there's that 80-20 rule, so I'm going to stick with the 80-20 rule and say probably about 80% of the issues that people have and present in counseling or in coaching are self-created issues. That's not to say they haven't had trauma. People experience trauma, and you did not ask for that. However, what we do after a trauma to ourselves is sometimes far worse than what the person who committed the trauma did. We beat ourselves up. We tell ourselves, what's wrong with me? Why did this happen to me? And we make it about ourselves because we're not putting the responsibility where it belongs. People often take responsibility for their own darn trauma. They weren't the ones who did it. Learning to put that responsibility where it belongs can be a good first step in healing yourself after a trauma, but you might need a counselor who's been trained in trauma to be able to help with that. Yeah. And another thing that's powerful with mental freedom is because to me, it feels like we each session, you dig a little bit deeper and I'm going to go to my gardening background, but the trowel goes a little bit deeper, the shovel goes a little bit deeper. That's another really applicable part of it is that if you have someone, they can move, they can have movement and change and positive things that happen from two sessions. It might be that they get farther and like you said, they're like, nope, like not ready for that. But it doesn't mean, and again, gardener in me, you're not planting seeds. And the other important thing is I know that you have done some podcasts and training with counselors transitioning to coaching. And I know for me, I had a very clear informed consent, even with this group I'm running now, that this is not a counseling group. If there are things that come up that are more serious, we're going to work on getting you transitioned to care. I think there's so many therapists now transitioning into the world of coaching that that line can sometimes be really blurred because you get there with a coaching client and you're like, I can deal with this, but then you are putting on a very different hat. I think just that word of warning of being aware that something might come up that you can handle, but what is your role with that person? And are you clear with that role from the beginning with that client? That's a really important point. And you know that I do have a coaching program where I teach people approved by board certified coaching. And the very first thing that we learn is the difference between coaching, counseling, and consulting. 
because if you're coming from the business world and you want to become a coach, you're much more accustomed to consulting and you figure they're hiring me to teach them how to do a business plan. So I'm going to show them how to do a business plan. That's consulting. That's not coaching. And counselors have the same problem. They're used to giving advice and helping people with deep emotional trauma, emotions, the past. That is not the playground where coaches play. We need Mm -hmm. to look at the present and the future. And we're talking about actions and thoughts, not feelings. Not that feelings aren't important. I'm not saying that at all. But it's just there is a stronger line than what you think when you actually learn the difference between counseling and coaching. Coaching ethics actually say when you become a coach, they tell you you cannot coach and counsel the same client. You have to be very clear. I'm your coach. If you need counseling services, I have to refer you to a counselor. If you're counseling someone and you get them to a place where they don't need counseling anymore, but they want coaching, you can't be their coach. You have to refer them to a coach because they may do some work with that coach and need to come back for a counselor. And if you're coaching them, you're not available to them. It's really an interesting and challenging line to walk. When you do a board-certified coaching program, you do become quite clear about what that line is. Not to say that it doesn't get blurry, because it does, but it's pretty clear when you're doing counseling and when you're doing coaching. And some counselors have been frustrated because they've been doing counseling for years, but when I describe the difference, they recognize, I haven't been counseling at all. I've been coaching all this time. And it feels like maybe they've been a little fraudulent, but no, that's not true because in the past there were only counselors, so we did it all. But now they're making that distinction. And it's important because for many reasons, but one reason is that insurance companies look at counseling as a medical necessity to a medical problem, and they will often pay for counseling. That's not true for coaching. And I think insurance companies are not wanting to pay for normal everyday people to have counseling just to help them accomplish some goals that they have. I think they want to distinguish that. That's the area of a coach. Go see a coach. We're not paying for your counseling sessions. But I don't know that for sure. I just suspect that that may have a piece, at least, in this dichotomy between counseling and coaching. Right. Interesting. My next question has to do with what you spoke of earlier when you mentioned that sometimes you can see the light bulb go off above someone's head when you're talking about mental freedom. So I wanted to ask you if you or your clients have experienced any light bulb moments that you're able to share. Of course, again, protecting their confidentiality. Yeah, definitely. And they're able to articulate that, but you can almost see it on their face that when you finally give someone permission to stop doing something that they didn't really want to do in the first place, you just see relief and almost like this stunned, whoa, and then owning the language. Yeah. So the situation with maybe a family member where there had been a lifelong relationship that always the same Everybody has their role to play. Someone does something, you respond, they respond. And it's been that dance, the same thing. It's a scripted, choreographed dance. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. When you can help them to see that you're doing some things that may be creating frustration and creating something that's not healthy. So one of the things that I worked with, with someone in my group, had to do with addressing someone's behavior 
partly in the client's mind because she didn't want other people to suffer. Mm-hmm. So something was happening within the family dynamic. One person had a role they always played that was not really healthy. And so my client actually said, I need to have a talk with her about this. And I said, you need to have a talk with her? Is that your responsibility? And then it became, well, other people are uncomfortable when this happens. And I said, well, I wonder how the other people feel. Perhaps they don't want you to step in. And that was like, wow, you're right. And actually the client was able to say, I'm not allowing them to be autonomous. I'm not allowing them to have an authentic relationship because I'm stepping in between and defending them when maybe they don't want to be defended. It's that where I think when you have the openness and going into it with really wanting to take a look and wanting to make changes, I can see the relief and that jarring like, wow, I thought about this the same way for decades. And all of a sudden, you've released me from needing to continue with that same pattern. It's awesome. It will take some time to break a pattern like that, and they likely will fall back into it more than once. But if they're Mm -hmm. committed to that path, I think that is amazing. And that's one of the things that we like to point out in mental freedom is that when you take responsibility for things that are not yours, it sometimes means that you're robbing someone else from developing skills or learning the lessons that they need to learn. If you take that into account, it may be painful to watch the people that you love learning lessons that are not easy, but that's honestly how we learn. I often think about how many people, despite what their parents told them, had to touch that stove to be sure it really was hot. Most of the people I know touched the darn stove. Nobody can tell you, don't touch that, it's hot. Don't go outside without a coat, you're going to be cold. People have to do those things to learn for themselves. It's one thing to trust somebody and believe everything they say, but most people don't do that. We need to experience our ourselves. So when we overtake responsibility for other people, we're preventing them from learning the lessons, from discovering their own gifts, from developing the skills they need. What will they do when we're not around? We can't be there 24-7. So yeah, that's awesome. I love that story. If I wanted to pin you down and ask you, what do you like best about mental freedom? What would you say? I don't think it's one thing. I've already mentioned some of this, but it's so applicable. If you want to use it in a counseling setting, applicable. You can pull parts of it. Coaching, I like to, again, you can pull parts of it, but working through the six sessions, the way you have them outlined with the paragraph about what each session is about, when somebody can look at that and say, wow, I don't know what all this means, but it seems like it's really powerful. It's very structured, organized, you know, using some terms like the response able that people can latch on to and change the way they look at a situation just by how they're thinking about it. That's a beautiful part about it. For me, I could seamlessly take some of it into the therapy room and I can certainly take it into the coaching situation, whether it's an individual or a group. It works beautifully in a group. Even though I have the advantage of people that we don't need to really develop trust because we have it, the way you have it structured with that digging a little bit each week, there is that chance for people to develop trust with each other, that what I share here is going to be respected and heard, and you can ease into it that way. It takes a lot of these empowering principles and makes them very accessible. You are big on having us 
be in touch with it with ourselves and use our own examples. And that is typically not a therapy thing. So again, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't use this in the same way with therapy, but in coaching, having that comfort that I've talked through this, I've done this with the group, I've done this with Kim, there's nothing the clients are going to say that I probably didn't experience doing it myself. So I love that part of the training. Yeah, it's important to me for my certified people to have had their own mental freedom experience. And that doesn't just mean that you sat through six sessions and you can check them off. It means that you were impacted by those six sessions. You don't have to be impacted by every single one. But if you had no impact and sat through six sessions, then you're not going to be an effective practitioner of mental freedom. You need to have something that you are standing on and something that you're sharing so that you're not teaching people things that are coming from your head and not your heart. And I really believe that this has to come from the heart for it to have the impact that I hope it will have. Thank you for that. I just want to ask, is there anything you might like to add that we didn't talk about? The only thing that I realized I didn't bring into the conversation is how we structure it based on our needs the safety and security and connection, that was another piece that from the beginning helped to frame the client's understanding in the group I have now. When they think about how they've acted historically, they can put it in that context of, but you know, I like to feel safe and secure, or, you know, I like to have that connection. That underpinning of that part of it to understand our motivation and why sometimes our need for it is stronger or not as strong. I love the scaffolding of that that runs under the whole thing. Yeah, it's a bit of self-awareness before we go into it. And then not only aware of your own, but aware of the other important people in your life. I just worked with a husband and wife and I smile when I talk about them because they are so different and I wonder how they ever got together, but they have been together for 40 some years. They've had some rough times, even worked through two separate affairs that I'm aware of. The last affair is why they came to see me. They were separated, living in different places, trying to explore whether they wanted to get back with each other. I did mental freedom with them as a couple, but the beginning of my time with them was really spent trying to help them get to know each other. Because if you take any variables, they were on opposite ends of almost everything. She was an extrovert. He was a total introvert. That was one thing. He was such a significance and freedom person. And she has connection and safety and security. So you have these two needs and they're misunderstanding each other all over the place because they're making it personal. When they learned how to understand who each other is, it helped them to stop taking it personally and be able to say, oh, this is what he needs. Oh, this is what she needs. It's not a criticism of me. It's not I'm a bad person. I just need to learn how to give my partner what they need so we can have a healthier relationship. They are very committed to being together. And a lot of it was the needs and understanding those Mm -hmm. differences and not trying to make the other person change, trying to get a significance person to be a connection person or a freedom person to be a connection person is a little like asking a cat to be a dog. It's not going to happen. But understanding can breed acceptance and even appreciation if you want to go to that step. Appreciation is the last step I talk about. You start at conflict and then you move to tolerance, which is not a place to sit for very long, but you need to pass through tolerance to get to understanding and then acceptance and then appreciation if you want to go that far. 
they've done that. And it was just a beautiful thing to watch. I just mentioned that because of the needs you brought that up. I never would have even gone into all of that, but it was really fun to work with those two. That's going to bring this to an end. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and the success that you're having. It's exciting to me to watch it unfold. So I want to thank you very much for not only being a mental freedom practitioner, but meeting with me today to be able to share your experiences with the audience. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for having me. It is a hoot. I'm loving it. And I really do love talking about it. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be continuing the conversation about mental freedom with Tina Odensky-Zess. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.